0: I would imagine that the first point of Jesus's first sermon, at least the first sermon recorded in scripture, would be very important. Don't you think? What was the first point in Jesus's first recorded sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why was that his first point of his first sermon? Because that is the most important mark of the people of God. It's first. It's essential. God's people at heart Are humble. Our sermon text today is Isaiah chapter 56 and 57, two chapters, very complicated in my opinion, very rich, very full. I will only spend a few minutes this morning on the main point, which I have given to you in this note sheet. I encourage you to get one of these note sheets out and, and follow along because I think that it will be helpful to you today as it has been helpful to me as I studied this week. The main point, the one big point of our two chapter servant texts is this. In light of the salvation accomplished by grace and coming soon. God invites everyone into the blessing of living in covenant obedience, which is defined by humility. Now, whether that is worded very well or not, I want to take the rest of this sermon and unpack that. I've thought about this. I've, I've done my best to encapsulate what I believe is the main point of Isaiah 56 and 57 into this one distilled, condensed point that says this. The one who is high and holy doesn't bless those who think they're high and holy. (laughs) The one who is high and holy has one requirement. He invites everyone to come into the blessings of His kingdom. And what is the chief mark, characteristic, and requirement of those who will be blessed by the kingdom of God? Humility. Do you see humility in your heart? If so, friend just stop and thank God because that's only by His grace that it's there. Every one of us are proud, arrogant rebels who are self-promoting, self-serving individuals. And if we see humility coming out of our heart, it's because God did a work in us to make us His people. So this morning, our sermon text finds us in the same place as the people of God in about 700 B.C. The people of uh, greater Israel, or specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, here in the, the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, those people now were wrapped up in all kinds of idolatry and unfaithfulness to God. And God is upset with their sin. He has confronted their sin in the first 40 chapters. And then ever since chapter 40 through chapter 55 last week, God has been comforting his people saying, I'm going to send you into captivity because I love you. I want to purify you. I want to get rid of your idolatry and unfaithfulness. And I want to do a good work in you so that you will be pure. So what God does is he promises that he will not only send them into this brutal captivity, but he will save them from this captivity. So there they sit right now in between the promise and the actual fulfillment of that promise. They're living in between. God said that he would save us, but he hasn't saved us yet. We, we can kind of imagine God's people living in Babylon under oppression and under difficulty. He's promised to save them, but he hasn't delivered them yet. Living in between. We're right there, aren't we? God has not only promised to save us through the Lord Jesus Christ from our captivity to sin and death, but he has actually accomplished that salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's finished, Jesus says. But it's not been completely realized yet, has it? It's still being worked out. We, right here in 2022, Winchester, Virginia, planet Earth, we're living in between salvation accomplished and salvation fully realized. God has a message for us today and his people in about 700 BC through the prophet Isaiah. Here's his message. In light of salvation accomplished and salvation coming, what are we supposed to do? In light of God, invites his people, yes, everyone, into the blessing of living out that salvation in obedience to him as his covenant people. And that obedience at heart is defined not by faithful perfection but by humility. If we had to measure our whether we're people of God or not by how perfect we are, how many of us would qualify? I'm so glad that God is not looking for perfection in us, but he is looking for humility from us. So, friends, we live in between. And God is calling us to something today. He's calling you to live as the people of God on earth in obedience. Defined by humility. All right. That's the one point of our text. We haven't gotten to read our text yet. We've already spent almost nine minutes leading up to that point. And before we do read that text, I want to show you that that one point has about five parts. Again, I've listed them for you. And before I read through these parts, which we're going to do together, we're going to read this text. It's God's word. It's good. But I want you to kind of understand this whole thing before we dive in. All right. So here's the five parts of our text. The first part is this. Number one, it's an exhortation. God exhorts. He encourages. He invites his people to live in covenant obedience. Now, I couldn't figure out whether to use the word exhort because it is an exhort. It's it's God saying, do this. I couldn't figure out if it was an encouragement or if it was an invitation. And so rather than choosing... Let's just say yes to all because this, there's no, there is no contradiction because between God exhorting us and inviting us because God is only inviting us into his blessings and telling us if we will live this way, we will experience his blessings. So every exhortation of God is an invitation to be blessed by him. Don't see God's commands as um, weighty, uh, obligatory mandates that are oppressive. See them as invitations into his blessing. So in the first part, God invites and encourages his people to live out their life in Babylon, back then, on earth. In covenant obedience, live like people of God. Number two is an emphasis. Right after he gives this invitation and exhortation in verse 1 and 2, in verse 3 through 8 of chapter 56, he gives an emphasis. Who does he mean by his people? National, biological, Sons and daughters of Abraham? No. The emphasis here in this text is when I say my people, from chapter 55, when I say everyone who's thirsty, I mean everyone. He gives us two examples of who he means by everyone. Foreigners and eunuchs. And we'll see why in a moment. So the exhortation and then the emphasis, God excludes no one, invites everyone to live in covenant obedience, and then a rebuke. So chapter 56, verse 9 finishes out into chapter 57 with a rebuke against the false shepherds of Israel who are leading God's people astray and probably... you'll you'll hear this in a moment, probably keeping the foreigners and the eunuchs from coming into God's people and enjoying God's blessings. After that rebuke, then a warning. God warns against idolatry, which is the opposite of living out life in covenant obedience. And then he ends with an explanation, which is what I think bookends and makes this one unit. Otherwise, you'd be like, why are you sticking all this stuff together? Well, the reason is because I think number one and number five fit together like bookends. The exhortation and then the explanation. Who are those people who live in covenant obedience? God explains who the humble. If God just told you, obey me, how much hope do you have to do that? Well, we've already learned over and over and over again, we can't do it. But if God says, I want you to live in covenant obedience, and what I mean by that is a heart of contrition that constantly repents of your sin and a lowliness that is constantly in need of me and you just keep coming back to find refuge for your weary and sinful soul in me, now are you encouraged? So God defines covenant obedience at the heart as humility that's that's what I'm doing this morning that's that's what I've labored this week to understand and I want to uh, I want to show that to you. This whole thing ended up for me in a picture on on my whiteboard so I, I drew it out there for you. this whole thing focuses on those people in the middle, the people who are obedient and humble. Everything in this text focuses on the people who are obedient and humble. And notice that they are the true people in the greater body of national and religious Israel. And God says that foreigners and eunuchs can be part of those covenant people. They can be part of my covenant. And the high and holy one dwells with those who are obedient and humble. And on the outside of that, are idolaters and false shepherds. And anyway, if that's helpful to you, great. Otherwise, you can doodle on it, turn it into something else. Let's, let's read this text and go through this together. All right. Our text has five parts. The first one is an exhortation. In chapter 56, verse one and two, God encourages his people to live in covenant obedience. Let's read that. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the Son of Man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Do you see there that the situation that God says is that something has been accomplished and something is coming soon? Look there at the end of verse 1. Soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. God said, do you remember chapter 53? My servant suffered so that you could be saved. And Israel, Judah, they're in Babylon. I'm promising that I will save you and deliver you. I have made sure to do it so that it matches with my righteousness, and that's going to happen. What's the key time word, the temporal word there? Soon, but not yet. And so to us, God says, I'm going to ultimately deliver you from the presence and the power and the penalty of sin and death. I'm going to do that, but it hasn't happened yet. What does the New Testament say about the coming of Jesus and the kingdom of God? When's it going to happen? Many times in the New Testament, the word soon is used. It is eminent. We are living in light of the soon return And salvation that God has promised. But it hasn't happened yet. What are we supposed to do? Here's God's exhortation. Keep justice. Do righteousness. And keep the Sabbath. What is that? Keeping justice. And doing righteousness. And especially keeping the Sabbath. Those are covenant commands that God's people In Israel, are to obey. In fact, if you think about it, what's significant in Isaiah about the word justice and righteousness? That's what God's king, his son, is going to set up. God said, I'm going to send you a king who's going to set up a kingdom and it's going to be marked by every time. What does God say? Justice and righteousness. So what I want you to do there in Babylon is live out the justice and the righteousness of your king. Christians, 2022, what God wants us to do is live out the principles of King Jesus by living out his justice and his righteousness right here and right now in light of the fact that salvation has already been accomplished and salvation is coming soon. Right now, live out justice, right and wrong, treating others with equity, defending the poor and the vulnerable. Live out, do what it says, do righteousness. Do that which is right and holy versus that which is sinful and natural and selfish. And then more specific to the covenant, because you might say, well, those are the people all over the earth would do justice and righteousness. But what about this Sabbath? That makes it a real people of God, God of Israel kind of obedience, does it? And keeping the Sabbath, which we're going to explore in detail next week, because chapter 58 deals with that specifically. Keeping the Sabbath, the Sabbath was one day, the last day of the week, the seventh day, that was to be honored as the Lord's day. Why? Two reasons. Because we honor God as creator, and we do that by resting, and we honor, Deuteronomy chapter 15 tells us that we honor God as redeemer as the one who delivered his people from bondage. So there, God says in Babylon, even before you are released, I want you to keep my Sabbaths, which means living and honoring God by resting and rejoicing, because your God is creator and redeemer. This is unique to the people of God. So God exhorts his people to live in covenant obedience. And who does this? Well, that's the emphasis of this text. Chapter 56, verse 3 through 8. God says everyone's included. Not just biological and national Israel. Look at verse 3. Let not the foreigner... Who has joined himself to the Lord say, Well, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. What God says here in verse three is that covenant obedience and covenant blessing is not just for the children of Abraham by the flesh. Verse three teaches us this important lesson: the people of God are people of faith, not people of the flesh. And so that means that even within biological and national Israel, not all Israel is true Israel. Not everybody who was the the uh, born, the son or daughter of, and descendant of Abraham is "quote unquote." the people of God. Why? Because only the people of faith, those people in that diagram, in the middle, those people who actually obey God. Let me give you just a a practical example. Have you ever heard somebody claim to be a quote-unquote Christian, but then their life reflects nothing of actually following Jesus and actually obeying Jesus? Why do they claim to be a Christian if they're not following Christ? The people of God obey God, just like the people of Christ obey and follow Christ. So God says, live like the covenant people on earth. And who can do that? Not just the children of flesh, but the children of faith. The children of faith, those people who actually obey. And who's included here? Foreigners and eunuchs. Why foreigners and eunuchs? Why did Isaiah and God choose foreigners and eunuchs? Couldn't he have chosen lots of other things? Here's why specifically, I believe. Foreigners are those who are not the biological children of Abraham, but the children of faith. And eunuchs are those who cannot bear children to propagate the biological children of Abraham, but they can bear the fruit of faith. It's all about faith, not biology, not birthright. So God says in verse 3 through 8, when I say everyone, I mean everyone, excluding no one, not foreigners, not eunuchs. And so then he speaks directly to the eunuchs first and the foreigners second. Read verse 4 and 5. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Uh, These eunuchs who can't bear any children of the flesh, but can bear the fruit of faith. God says, I see your faith. I see your obedience. Look how he describes it in verse 4. They keep my Sabbaths. Why? Oh, man, this is a rebuke, friends. Are you ready for this? Verse 4, because they choose to. They didn't grow up in a home and feel like I have to. They don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, the law of God is so oppressive, I have to obey God. These eunuchs know where blessing is. They want to come to the God of Israel, who is the God of all creation for his blessing. And so they come, they choose to. Look, they choose the things that please me and they hold fast to my covenant. And God says, because of that heart... Verse 5, what kind of an inheritance will God give these eunuchs, which are separated from everything in the law? Like, they're not even allowed in the temple, they're not allowed to be part of Israel, and what does God say? I'm going I'm to give you in my house and within my walls I'm going to give you a better and more lasting name and inheritance than what biological sons and daughters could ever carry on for you. I'm going to give you a name better than any kids that you could ever have. That's beautiful. To the foreigners, verse 6 through 8. Chapter 56, verse 6 through 8. And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him Besides those already gathered. American, do you recognize that's you? If you're a Christian. God says to these foreigners, I see your heart. Look at their heart in verse six. They joined themselves. This is their thing. They joined themselves to the Lord. Why? Three reasons. Because they wanted to minister to him. They wanted to love him. And they wanted to be his servants. Look at their obedience to the covenant commands. Verse 6. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. What does God promise them? Verse 7 and 8. Those who are excluded from the mountain and from the temple, the foreigners, not allowed inside the temple. There's a court special for them. God says, I'm going to bring you into my house, and your offerings are going to be acceptable to me. You know why? Because my house isn't just for the biological children of Abraham. And now we know why Jesus was so upset when he came to the temple and saw the biological children, ungodly shysters of Israel, setting up shops in the courtyard of the Gentiles, the foreigners, so that they could milk them for every dime they could get before those foreigners could ever get to God. Israel and her priests and her leaders tried to to steal from them and keep them away. Jesus came in, made himself a whip, flipped over tables, threw money, scattered animals and said, this house is my father's house and it is supposed to be a house of prayer for who? The nations. The Russians and the Ukrainians, the Chinese, the Vietnamese, the Africans, the Asians, the Americans. The nations, not just you, Israel. God excludes no one and invites everyone to come into the blessing of obedience. And notice that this obedience comes from the heart. Boy, is that ever a a rebuke to my own soul sometimes. Well, before God rebukes me personally, he rebukes In chapter 56, verse 9 through 57, 2, he rebukes those people who are supposed to be leading Israel to such a heart religion. The reason that they didn't lead Israel to such a heart religion was because their heart was far from God. Isaiah's already pointed this out a number of times. And here in in this next section, God rebukes the false shepherds of Israel and he uses a bunch of imagery to do it. So just follow along here and recognize that God is saying, I've called the beasts of the world, like the, the wolves and the, you know, the, the lions of the world to come and devour my people because of you false shepherds, because you are a bunch of lazy sleeping dogs who are getting drunk instead of serving me and my people. Okay. He gets pretty serious about this. I'll let him speak for himself. 56, nine. All you beasts of the field. Come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Verse 10. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They can't bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes. No one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away. While no one understands, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. God is rebuking the false shepherds of Israel for not doing their job. They are drunk on their own self-centeredness and asleep at the wheel when they should be leading and feeding God's sheep. So what happens? The righteous man perishes from Israel. And nobody even knows it. I wonder if that's what's happening in our culture. I wonder if the righteous man is perishing from our culture because those of us who are supposed to be the shepherds of God's people are just telling people what they want to hear. And making sure that our jobs are secure. Making sure that we grow in popularity and in power. Rather than actually directing people toward God. God rebukes it. And then God gives a second warning in chapter 57 verse 3. All of this is good for our soul. Let it be like a mirror to you and and. Just let it lay open your own soul, and then I'm going to finish with the last emphasis and press that on us in more detail. This fourth part is a warning. So whereas God just rebuked the false shepherds, now he exposes false religion. God warns against idolatry. Now, for the faint of heart, this is going to get pretty graphic. I'm glad that some of us are underage so that we don't understand the sexual passion that's involved in this text. I'm just going to read it and understand this is how God sees us running after false religions and doing our own thing rather than following his way through his gospel of his son, Jesus. Chapter 57, verse 3 through 13, God warns against idolatry He says, but you, not the righteous man, but you, draw near, sons of the sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent from these things? Verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed. There you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You you sent your envoys far off and sent down even into Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you didn't say it's hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me? Did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds but they will not profit you. When you cry out, Let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Did you notice how God sees Idolatry as deserting him and relentlessly, energetically pursuing other lovers to where even when you're tired, you say, that's all right. I'm going to keep on going. And it's with the passion of an affair the passion that we should have like those foreigners and those eunuchs who have chosen the things that God loves and have chosen to just want to serve Him and please Him. That's what God says idolatry looks like to Him. I don't have time to dwell on that anymore. I encourage you to do it because every time that we pursue our own self-interest, that's what it looks like to God. We come to the final Part of this, we've seen the exhortation. God inviting his people to live in covenant obedience. Everyone. Now, what does he mean by that? An explanation. Chapter 57, verse 13b through 21. God explains what he means When he says, live out your time in Babylon or your time in Winchester by obeying me. God explains the heart of that as humility and promises grace to the humble. And friends, I want to, I want to emphasize that he, he's looking for humility, not perfection. Did you notice the transition at the end of verse 13? Chapter 57, verse 13, but in contrast to those who are pursuing. Uh, idolatry and going to receive the judgment of God for it, but he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Here's the promise of grace to the humble. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. You hear God bringing them out of Babylon, God bringing us out of sin and captivity. Prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Verse 15, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What's he going to say? Because I feel my idolatry. What's he going to say? Because I know I'm unfaithful. What's he going to say? Because I know we're here in Babylon because we've sinned against the high and holy God. Verse 15, I dwell in the high and holy place and also. Aren't you so glad for and also's? I dwell. Yes, I'm high and holy, but I dwell also in one more place. With him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. He says, I dwell with the contrite and lowly at the end of verse 15. Why? To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain. God says, I was angry. I struck him. Speaking of his people, Israel, I hid my face and I was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I've seen his ways. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his Mourners, creating the fruit of his lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God. For the wicked, God promises grace to those who will take refuge in Him. God promises grace to those who are of a contrite spirit and a lowly spirit. We see the gospel here, friends. God is holy. He's high and lifted up. When Isaiah saw him in chapter 6, the cherubim were chanting back and forth, holy, 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 because that is the primary attribute of God. Holy, holy. He's transcendent, way above. He's God, you're not. But this high and holy God is not aloof from his creation. God says, yes, I dwell in high and holy places, but I also dwell with the humble. He describes them as having a contrite and lowly spirit. Contrition is when we recognize our sin and we turn away from it. Contrition is repentance. Lowliness is humility, it's need. And so those who are lowly and need, who see themselves as sinners before a holy God, they run to God for refuge. That's why Jesus in his very first sermon made this statement. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Number two, blessed are those who what? Mourn. Those who feel their need spiritually and those who mourn over their sin. Isaiah chapter 57, contrite and lowly. That's who God blesses. God says he'll live with you. In fact, maybe better. Jesus says, I'm going to have my spirit live in you for the rest of eternity. And why does he dwell with the contrite and lowly spirit? He explains there in verse 15, to do a work in them. What's the work? To revive their spirits. He said, why would they need to be revived? Because I was angry against their sin. But now I'm relenting. Why? Because I've already satisfied my wrath in my suffering servant of chapter 53, and I'm promising to save you, and I'm pouring out my grace now on all of those who will humble themselves and see their need and come to me. Friends, all I'm asking you is, is that you? Verse 18, he says, I've seen your ways, but I'm going to heal you. He will heal the ways of the humble. He will lead you and restore comfort to you. He'll even create the fruit of your lips, which is praise to God for his grace. And then he ends with the promise that we've already seen one other time in Isaiah, where God says there's peace available for one kind of people and then no peace for another. There's peace available for the humble and no peace for the wicked. So the question is, do you want God's blessings and God's peace every day for you, your family? It comes by covenant obedience, which is defined by humility. Here's my three takeaways personally. And what I encourage you, just very quickly as we close up, what I walked away from this text this week is deciding to live in three ways. Number one, I want to live in light of salvation, the salvation that's been accomplished and that's coming. The salvation that's been accomplished and the salvation that is coming. That's what we're going to do. Live in light of that. Keep that front and center. And when we do, then, number two, we will live in covenant obedience. You know why we don't live in covenant obedience? Because we forget that we're now gods and that he's coming back. We forget who we are. Covenant obedience comes from keeping and living in light of who we are in Christ and the fact that Jesus is coming back. Live in light of salvation, accomplished and coming, which is living in covenant obedience. Rob read it for us earlier. Micah 6, 8. God tells you, O man, what's good and, and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice, to love kindness, and what's that last one? To walk humbly with your God. So number three. Covenant obedience is defined as living in humility. Christian friend, live in light of the salvation that's already been accomplished for you and that is coming. Live out your time here in covenant obedience. He's going to describe what that looks like next week. For right now, it looks like keeping justice, doing righteousness and keeping the Sabbath, honoring God as creator and redeemer. And at the heart Covenant obedience is defined as humility. That spirit that just constantly takes refuge in the Lord, that turns in contrition away from our faults and our failures, and that is lowly and sees our need of Christ. And God promises that he will give grace to the humble. So humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's our sermon text this morning, friends. I encourage you to take that brief overview, go back and read it again and ask God to show you the beauty of his gospel and his return, so that it would create in you a humility that desires to live out your life here in covenant obedience to him. Let's pray for that grace, all right? God, I pray that you would please take something of your word today, which has been a lot, and I pray that you would press it on our hearts and that you would do a good work in us. And and I pray that especially that work would be a work of humbling us so that we see you who are high and holy and we see ourselves as sinful and unfaithful, prone to wander into idolatry. I pray that you would create that humility so that we every day run for refuge in you turning from our sin god please do that work in us so that so that our kids see the gospel lived out and like the foreigners and eunuchs our neighbors and our co-workers might want to come to jesus because they see the blessing of living in obedience to god please put your gospel and your grace on display through us corporately as a church and individually as Christians we well, thank you in Jesus name amen